Thanks to you, Issues Etc. consistently ranks among the top podcasts in religion and spirituality with Apple Podcasts. Please help us reach more listeners in 2024 by making a year-end gift. For a year-end donation of $250 or more, we'll send you our forthcoming book, Objections Overruled 3, and a new recording of 15 hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. You can make a secure online contribution at issuesetc.org. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support. The big word nowadays is consent. What happens between consenting adults is no one else's business. And it sounds good and it lets a lot of people off the hook, especially if those people don't want to struggle with what the Bible has to say about sex before marriage and cohabitation. So is consent all it's cracked up to be? Or is it really itself a bit of an illusion, especially when it comes to casual sex? Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Joining us to respond to the argument that sex before marriage between consenting people doesn't hurt anyone, Dr. Scott Stiegelmeyer. He's professor of theology and bioethics, Concordia University, Irvine, California, and author of a chapter of our forthcoming book, Objections Overruled 3. Scott, welcome back. Thanks, Todd. It's always good to be with you. What is God's purpose for sex? Uh, God's purpose for sex. Well, obviously, there's a, a ton of confusion about what sex means. Lots of people are very fascinated by what it is and what they can get out of it. I like to say that, that first of all, as Christians, we have to acknowledge and, and recognize that sex is good. Right? I mean, we can be sex positive, I suppose, in a godly way, in a Christian way. God is the inventor, the creator of sex. Sexual attraction is God-given. It's part of his purpose as a creator. What is the purpose of sex or the Christian view of that? It's to participate in God's good plan for humanity. God created Adam and Eve, and his first mandate to them is to be fruitful and multiply. I would say it's part of human nature, and it's a good thing of human nature, not a result of the fall. The fall into sin, of course, uh, has corrupted everything human. And it has badly damaged and badly corrupted the sexual impulse, right? The God-given desire to be a couple with one of the opposite sex. And so we have all kinds of twisted kinds of lust and desire now. But God's vision for this is that we would there would be self-giving love from one person to another. And that is very God-like, right? I mean, maybe that's even what is partially meant by imaging God. God is, a, by nature, love. The Bible teaches us that God is love, and love, by definition, is always giving oneself to another. And when you have a couple where they're both doing that, when they're both giving themselves comprehensively, that means body, mind, and spirit, to the other one, and then they're receiving that from their partner, their spouse, then that is a fruitful love, and it produces offspring and creational intention. And that's beautiful, and I and I think that we can speak as Christians of sex in God's plan as very beautiful, and uh, and in, and in fact, like I said, perhaps even mirroring God's own self-giving love, that love which produces life. It's life-giving, and I think when we can rightfully and faithfully 
make that known and make that understood as our Christian message, then I think we can maybe gain some hearing from some people that might just automatically assume Christianity is some sort of oppression against these natural desires and so on. What are the lies told by the world regarding sex? Well, it's the opposite, right? I mean, so so the devil is the enemy, right? He's the great enemy of humanity. And so he wants to oppose God's desires and God's wishes and intentions for mankind. And to oppose God means to make something the opposite of God's plan. And so if God's plan in the meaning of sex is that it be self-giving in nature and that it be beautifully fruitful and life-giving, well, what's the opposite of that? The opposite of giving of yourself to one another is to take from the other for your own. And what is the opposite of life-giving? Sterility. So the lies that the world has bought is that satanic gospel, so to speak, that sex is, maybe they give lip service to giving of self and all that sort of thing. But it is fundamentally about pleasure-seeking or fulfillment-seeking, and that's why people get tired of their sexual partner and move on oftentimes. And it is also why our culture, the world, has separated sexual intercourse from procreation. You know, it's seen as recreation, not procreation. If God's part of God's perfect intention for sexuality is that it, in generally speaking, is life-giving and fruitful producing children, then the opposite of that is to diametrically oppose it. And so therefore you have all sorts of things like maybe we would say rampant artificial contraception for the for selfish purposes, abortion, and uh, other forms of sterilization to thwart that God-given, creational, beautiful purpose and meaning of sex. How does the world regard the Christian view of sex? Well, they typically don't like it. The Christian view is, a, I'm arguing, is a very positive thing and is good for humanity. And the world doesn't see that because they're blind. We all, because of our fallenness, are prone to being blind to God's goodness, God's gifting. And so the lie that Satan told Eve was essentially this, that God is holding out something good from you. And that is, you know, this whatever, knowledge of good and evil, that God is not in your best interest. You know, and that's what the devil is supposedly masquerading himself as, is having our best interest in mind. I'm your true friend. Like he's telling Jesus, you don't have to fast. I just want you to feed. So the devil always tells these lies that are trying to make us look at God, not as our loving father, but as a taskmaster, someone who owns us and as objects, and so true liberty uh, means walking away from this God's plan according to Christian proclamation. And so they see the Christian version of this, the true one, as it is relayed in God's word in Holy Scripture for us. They see that as anti-human, unnatural, you know, this idea that sex should be confined to marriage and that premarital sex is not correct and that adultery, of course, is wrong. And and so on and so forth. So they would say that, no, sex is really about self-fulfillment and about pleasure-seeking, at least implicitly, I think that's what the world lies and says. 
so well if that's true if if sex is about self-fulfillment and pleasure seeking well then the church's message about giving yourself of course it's pleasurable you know sex is intended to be joyous but you know it does sound to them like our restricting of it into its proper place that it is somehow we're being anti-human and we're contravening what is really natural and therefore almost oppressive and that's why the world not only believes that Christian teaching on sexual morality is wrong, but that it's harmful, it's dangerous. And so Christianity is not just some kind of silly error backward, but that it is to be directly opposed by human interests. How have some Christians attempted to accommodate the world's views? Well, that's a complex question. It has a lot to do, I think, with our fallenness in a certain sense as Lutherans we have this great concept a true one that the Christian is simultaneously a sinner and a saint that is to say that we are fully saint and justified in the eyes of God according to his work of his son but as insofar as we are in this temporal world we still retain this fallenness this corruptedness which is anti-God so First thing to, to realize is that human beings before the fulfillment on the last day are continually wrestling. There's this internal struggle where we wrestle against our flesh, like in Romans 7, like Paul. So because of that, we are often prone to go with the ways of the world because partly we are still afoot in the world. So a lot of times Christians will turn a blind eye to great impurities in maybe the media that they tolerate or that they will maybe engage in. I mean, there's this widespread practice in our society of cohabitation before marriage. And once upon a time, this was at least socially and culturally as well as religiously frowned upon. But we live in a time now where we even within the church, family members and parents maybe in some kind of abstract way, don't believe in it, but maybe not, <laughs> and actually would maybe be totally fine with it for their children. We've come to this point where that's a worldliness, a worldly vision that God's plan as revealed in Scripture is just not practical or not ideal in, in some way. And that's, I think, a good way to say that. The argument that we're addressing is that sex before marriage between consenting people doesn't hurt anyone. What's the difference between hurt and harm? So in my article, I make that distinction. And sometimes the question is posed, what's wrong with kind of a free love or you know, sex outside of marriage as long as it, quote unquote, doesn't harm anyone or maybe doesn't hurt anyone? And yeah, in my article, I, I do make a distinction between hurt and harm, at least for the sake of my argument. And usually, I think, in our daily conversations, we don't probably make a big distinction between them. But this is what I'm trying to say, is that on a certain level, it might not appear as if sexual promiscuity is really hurting anybody, as long as it's consensual. Now, I mean, uh, thankfully, our culture still objects to things like rape and forced sex. And maybe we're even, maybe our society is even better in that way than it had been in the past in terms of this understanding of consent and not being objectified, and at least in some way, right? But generally people will say, as long as it's consensual, then that is people are not being forced against their will. 
then it doesn't hurt anyone. So why is the church or Christianity making such a big deal out of this? And so I try to make the point that even if on a certain level, it doesn't appear as if someone's being hurt. So by hurt, I mean something more immediate, like a, an immediate and direct painful response to something. If, if I were to stomp on your toe, that would hurt. <laughs> My action would probably hurt you. And you'd feel that pain. But most likely, even if it's very intense, it will be temporary and it'll go away and it's surface mostly. But by harm, I'm talking about even if someone doesn't feel like they're being hurt by an action, that there is some deeper way that they are being wronged. Okay, you can be wronged even if you don't notice it in a way, or you might even be okay with it. So I give some examples in my article about that and try to elaborate exactly what I mean by the difference between hurt and harm. And, and one example that I bring out is that, let's say, kind of a very free and open hookup culture that you might find amongst young people, but not just there. You know, let's say there's a guy who, a young man perhaps, who is looking for one sexual conquest after another, and he's not necessarily raping anyone in these dorm parties or whatever. But this activity, while it might not appear to people who are consenting that it's hurting them, it is actually insulting them as a human being created by God, redeemed by the Son of God. It is insulting their very being. And that will have long-term, deep, un, maybe unspoken negative effects on them. They may become seen even by themselves as objects or conquests or a prize to be won and lost. I think that can create a kind of inner despair, which may not immediately be apparent or may become apparent through all sorts of self-destructive behaviors. So what I'm trying to say is that I think that even on a immediate surface level, someone might say, well, this isn't hurting anybody. I'm, this is fun. It's, but I think that the way that it is undermining them as a human being, that has a ripple effect in their life and in the lives of other people too. Now people are going to feel that this is really what they're supposed to do. And always, always, always to walk away from God's good gift and good intention for that gift, to walk away from that is always harmful to us and death-dealing instead of life-giving. Dr. Scott Stegemeyer of Concordia University, Irvine, California, is our guest responding to the argument that sex before marriage between consenting people doesn't hurt anyone, and we will take up the issue of consent next. Thanks to you, Issues Etc. consistently ranks among the top podcasts in religion and spirituality with Apple Podcasts. Please help us reach more listeners in 2024 by making a year-end gift. For a year-end donation of $250 or more, we'll send you our forthcoming book, Objections Overruled 3, and a new recording of 15 hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. You can make a secure online contribution at issuesetc.org. Thanks for listening. And thanks for your support. Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world, specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences.
To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com, lutheracademy.com. Augustano Lutheran Church in Moscow, Idaho, invites you to receive the gifts of Christ with us. We preach Christ crucified for the forgiveness of your sins, risen from the dead for your justification and life. Confessional, sacramental, liturgical. We're a new Missouri Synod congregation on the Palouse. We meet Sundays near the University of Idaho, 1015 West C Street. Bible study, 9 a.m., divine service at 10. Find us on Facebook or visit MoscowLutheran.org. Criticism. I just had to call in to respond to this week's installment of Never Trump Drivel from Terry Mattingly. Compliments. I love the interviews and insights because they help me battle the slings and arrows of outrageous theology and practice. Clarification. Is there a point where, without baptism, infants go to heaven, and after which time they go to hell if they're not baptized? The Issues Etc. Comment Line, 618-223-8382. Lutheranism in the Public Square. You're listening to Issues Etc. Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by becoming an Issues Etc. Congregational Sponsor. Bethany Lutheran, Fairview Heights, Illinois. Emmaus Lutheran, South Bend, Indiana. Grace Lutheran, Rochester, Minnesota. Emmanuel Lutheran, Manchester, New Hampshire. Mount Calvary Lutheran, Brookings, South Dakota. Peace Lutheran, Glidden, Iowa. Reformation Lutheran, Hillsboro, Oregon. St. John Lutheran, Strongsville, Ohio. St. Paul Lutheran, Unionville, Michigan, and Trinity Lutheran, Valonia, Indiana. Find out how your confessional Lutheran church can support this worldwide outreach by including Issues Etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to issuesetc.org, click Support, Donate, and print a one-page flyer. When your congregation becomes an Issues Etc. sponsor, we'll publicize your church on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. Dr. Scott Stegemeyer is our guest for responding to the argument that sex before marriage between consenting people doesn't hurt anyone. Let's take up that issue of consent, Scott. How does the world regard consent? Right. So generally, consent, I suppose, by definition, means that you agree to something. If someone says, hey, let's go to a movie and you want to do that, or at least will agree to do that, you've given your consent to go along with this behavior. And consent isn't necessarily like grudging consent, like, oh, okay, perhaps, but it's really just kind of saying, yes, that is what I want to happen. So when we talk about consensual sex, we're really talking about not coercing someone. And and like I said, thankfully, our culture, at least outwardly, verbally, has come to maybe even a greater awareness that consent is important. And, And on that level, it is. No one should be defending coercion in sexual interplay. The problem isn't necessarily consenting itself. The problem is making consent the only thing that matters. As long as you give your consent, it doesn't matter if this walks in in alignment with God's good will for us, because you've given your consent. You know what you're doing. Do you know two consenting adults or more, not even two perhaps now. So the, the issue is not that, oh, you know, consent is bad. Mostly it, it's a good thing. If you're consenting to something that is truly good for you, and that would mean according to God's commands and will. 
So the problem, as I see it, is that our society has made consent the really the only thing that matters in terms of judging the goodness or badness of an action. And this isn't just in the sexual world. This is true in bioethics, which is something else I teach, that as long as a person gives their, you know, are willing that something should happen, then it shouldn't be judged or evaluated by someone else. So you said that true consent is often an illusion. You got into that a little bit. What do you mean by that? Well, that goes back to this idea that people agree to things all the time that are bad for them. And there's all sorts of complex motives. And, you know, we don't even understand our own motives, let alone the motives of each other. Because we're humans, right? Nothing is just, oh, I consent. There might be reasons that you consent that are bad for you. One example that I give is is imagine like a movie producer, right? This this sort of thing has been in the news a lot with the Me Too movement. Let's say you have a movie producer or a director who gives the impression, if not explicitly stating, but gives this strong impression to a young starlet or an up-and-comer that if they will go to bed with them, then he will have a more favorable attitude towards them when it comes to casting roles in a movie. And so the actress aspiring may consent. You know, he doesn't necessarily have to grab her forcibly, physically thrusting her down. Although, of course, that still happens too. But she may say okay and may even believe that this is something she's freely choosing. And she may even think that she's exploiting him for her benefit or something. But that's what I mean is consent really freedom? Is it possible that people appear to consent and even delude themselves to think that they are they are willingly going along with something freely? Or is it possibly that they're doing something that they would not ordinarily want to do, but are doing so because they feel like this is something that they basically need to do to achieve their goals? And so that's why I try to say that, that actual consent and, and freedom of choice in these matters is very often not quite what it seems and that people are in a soft way, maybe in an almost invisible way, coerced, where undue pressure is put on them that will alter their free decision-making. How does casual sex, the circumstances of casual sex, especially blur those lines of consent? Well, it becomes a sport. It, it, it can become just, uh, and this goes back to this, these lies, right? These satanic deceptions that we even repeat ourselves. We are in league with Satan very much, human beings who are fallen. And this being in league with Satan, we see sex, this casual sex, as it's not necessarily, they're not a commitment. We don't need to have some piece of paper saying that we're married and that we should be able to just do what's fun and do what's, what we feel like, again, quote unquote, as long as we're not hurting anybody else. And so I think that damages us in ways that we don't see in terms of how we see ourselves. We begin to see ourselves as utterly worthless. And I don't mean in the sense of being penitent. I mean in the sense of being hopeless and despairing. And that can lead to all sorts of self-destructive behaviors, addictions, and additional promiscuity, which can lead to health issues and so on. So this casual view of sex. Whereas what Christianity says is that sex is majestic. It is a glorious thing. There's no way to make that casual. It's special, right? When I think of casualness, I think of we're going to have a dinner, but it's just going to be paper plates and most of the food's going to come out of a can 
will maybe sitting around the TV. And I'm not saying that's always a bad thing, but there's something different between that and pulling out the finest china that you've inherited and the finest flatware that you have and crystal goblets and you light candles and people put on their finest clothing and you sit around as a family with the TV and phones completely removed and you have sparkling vivifying conversations with each other over food, over a meal. There's a fellowship there. Now, maybe we would say that's a formal way to approach something, but surely we see that as far as feeding the body and the soul, so this comprehensive blessing, that that is really what we want to go for mostly. And so when I think about sex, it's like we're settling for the paper plates and even worse. I mean, that example is not even adequate. I think C.S. Lewis said something like, we become too satisfied too easily. God wants to give us this great vacation on the beach in this beautiful villa, and we're just okay sitting underneath our porch eating mud pies. You know, so we become too satisfied with too little. It's not that we are actually looking for too much in a certain way. We're just satisfied with too little when God wants to give us something even better. And so, you know, this is all that twistedness of, of Satan that he convinces us that what is good is bad and what is bad is good. And that God who is good has not our best interests in mind is really our enemy and not our loving father. So casual sex is buying into that and becoming satisfied with too little, which is in fact, not good for us. So what's the difference between God-given sexual desire and lust? Well, lust is about grasping. Lust is about trying to commandeer something for yourself, right? I mean, it's, it's very desire-based and it's very flighty. Lust can come and go. Lust is immediate. It uh, short-circuits reason and self-reflection. Lust creates all kinds of diminishment of both the luster and the lusted. It objectifies. It's about using someone. It's about exploiting them for personal reasons. And that's how lust is, right? Lust is not just simply desire. It is the desire to control and possess another human being. And it's impossible to possess a human being, right? I mean, who can put a price tag on the image of God? So it's impossible. But when you act as if you need to possess them, and even if they go along with it, that's what I mean by lust. And it's deeply, deeply damaging to our humanity. But love, love or sexual desire in the context of God's intentions and God's will for us is, again, it's about giving yourself to the other. Of course, we can be attracted to the beauty and the excellencies of the other person. And, and I'm trying to say that that is actually a good God-given thing. I don't think that sex should be seen as just dutiful, laborious, but something we must do. But rather it is, uh, there should be joy there. There is joy there. And the world can even detect that that should be there. And they go for a cheap form of it. But Christian love and Christian sexual desire is that which is about serving the other person and celebrating each other. And I'll again use that word comprehensively. It, you know, a marriage between a man and a woman, according to God's plan, is 
a celebration of life, right? It's a true celebration of life. The Bible begins and ends with a wedding, right? It's all God's intention for this maybe is a good thing that is good for us. Even people that are saying, I don't mean to say that single people don't celebrate and rejoice in this. They participate in it just simply by being humans. Even if they've never actually experienced marriage in this life, they're part of the bride of Christ. So there's a higher level on that. But I don't think we should try to stunt desire per se, but to understand it and treat and focus it in the ways that are wholesome. And by wholesome, I literally mean whole, wholeness, that which makes us whole. And man and woman are made for each other. That's obvious, right? I mean, man and woman are physically designed to go together, to have this sort of intimacy that is impossible with someone with the same sex, right, bodily. So that's what I'm saying. It's not about trying to possess or control or use the other person for selfish gain, but rather to together serve each other. And when each partner is giving his and her life to the other person, then everybody is being served and blessed by that. Dr. Scott Stegemeyer is our guest responding to the argument sex before marriage between consenting people doesn't hurt anyone. We'll take up the issue of freedom next. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for December uses detailed illustrations and rhyming text to tell the story of Jesus' birth. It's titled, N is for Nativity. This new hardcover children's book is published by Concordia Publishing House, their phone number 1-800-325-3040, or learn more about N is for Nativity at issuesetc.org. Use the ABCs from Advent to Zion to teach your children and grandchildren the Christmas story with N is for Nativity. Declaring to you the whole counsel of God, you're listening to Issues Etc. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Our church loves and is grateful for those that serve our country. Operation Barnabas, part of Ministry to the Armed Forces, equips you to reach out to veterans in your community to bring Christ to those that served. Call Ministry to the Armed Forces at 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. Thank you for your service. Thank you. God bless our military. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. We're responding to the argument that sex before marriage between consenting people doesn't hurt anyone. Dr. Scott Stegemeyer is our guest, professor of theology and bioethics, Concordia University, Irvine, California, and author of a chapter in our forthcoming book, Objections Overruled 3. We'll send you our next book and a new LPR choir recording of 15 Christmas and Epiphany hymns for a year-end contribution of $250 or more. You can donate online at issuesetc.org. Or by check, make a check payable to Issues Etc. Send it to Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois 62234. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support of the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. Scott, how does the world regard freedom? Oh, that's a great one. Freedom. Well, we live in a culture where that obviously is a great value. And it goes to with consent, right? It's about freely choosing things. And, you know, on many, many levels, 
Christians are all about freedom. And I'm even politically, right? I mean, I'm delighted that I live in a country in a time period where we can enjoy many freedoms, right? I don't have to be worried about going to church. Generally, I can speak my mind and I can associate with whom I want. I think we can be very happy as Christians about all sorts of freedom, all kinds of freedoms. But freedom never just means you can do anything you want to do. Freedom isn't just about will, what I will, what I want. An example I like to use for that is following traffic laws. The laws of driving, the laws of the road, uh, restrict your freedoms. You can't just drive anywhere you want. You can't just cross lines and go up on sidewalks and you know do U-turns just anywhere you want. You have tremendous freedom within the boundaries, and those boundaries are in place for everybody's benefit. They're not intended to oppress you. And you might feel restricted, right? You might feel, I want to go faster. I want to drive 100 miles an hour on this interstate or whatever. And uh, maybe that's how you perceive or conceive of freedom. But what is more free? Is it more free for everybody to just kind of do whatever they like on the road? Because then you're going to end up with what? You're going to have crashes and you're going to have pedestrians being hit and you're going to have gridlock. And so you're going to be in traffic jams and you're not going to get where you want to go. So if everybody's just doing whatever they want, it actually is ever so much more oppressive than if we all live in accord with the boundaries that are given for our good, then we will actually get where we want to go. And so the lie about freedom is that it is basically, you can do what you want again with this caveat, which is a bit duplicitous as long as I don't hurt anybody. You say that marriage is the answer to the world's distorted view of sex. How so? Because that is the good plan of God, that marriage would be within this lifelong fidelity of comprehensive union of two persons of opposite sex, fidelity, monogamy, all, all those terms that go with what we understand marriage to be, rightly understand marriage to be, with the blessing of the community. And that is what is given for our good. And so the culture doesn't understand it. So marriage is God's good intention for humankind. It is about two human beings, a man and a woman, giving themselves to the other in a monogamous way with faithfulness, fidelity. It's lifelong. It's comprehensive, as I've used that word a couple of times now. This is God's plan. And God, unlike the satanic deception, God does have our best interest in mind because that's what it means to be God. God is love, right? God is naturally love. That is the nature of God to care about you. And he created you and has redeemed you purely out of goodness and mercy. God is the freest of all beings. He is under no obligation to create and redeem humanity, but he has done that. And part of his creation is this type of relationship between the sexes, which we which we know as marriage. And so marriage is where we can find sexual fulfillment that is paraded before us, before the world. Sexual fulfillment is paraded before, almost as the highest good of all things in our depraved society and world today. And so when people are seeking, and there is a level where even the most fallen, corrupt thing in the world, a human being, there is some level in which the law and plan and design and will of God is still present, imprinted, stamped 
on our soul, on our heart, right? We know this, the law of God is written on our hearts. So no matter how clouded and darkened our minds, there's still that there, which tells us this is not really the way it's supposed to be for humanity, that we just sort of hop from bed to bed, and that it isn't ultimately fulfilling. It might have a temporary sense of joyfulness, but it is not ultimately fulfilling. It's like an addiction. At first, you think you're doing okay, but pretty soon you can't manage it and you are suffering and maybe even going to die because of your being controlled by this unfulfilled need of an addiction. So when we think casual sex or that we just think of repeated partners outside of marriage is a way to find fulfillment, marriage in fact gives us the true understanding of what it means to be a human being in relationship to another. And so hopefully there are Christian churches who, who are faithful to the word of God are always going to be promoting marriage and family under God's design as what's good for us. And again, this is not in any way to suggest that people who are single, either by choice or by circumstances, are not in some sense fulfilled as creatures. I don't mean to say that because even when we are not married, or before we're married, or if you're a widow, even when we are not married, you are designed in such a way that that is kind of what we reflect, right? We reflect in our very nature as human beings, our very design, even bodily, that to give oneself to another is the most godlike, Christ-like thing. And it is walking in a Christ-resembling way where your best life can be found, so to speak. How is extramarital sex unnatural? Well, the Creator is natural, and Jesus is natural. If you want to know what is natural, the word nature just means that which is given by God, and it is the way for a thing to be the way a thing is. And under Christian understandings, the way a thing is, apart from its distortion or corruption or murder by sinfulness, but the way a thing is, is given by God. So if you want to know what the nature of a thing is, you want to know what it is that God has given. So what is the nature, what is the goodness, the God-given identity or meaning of sex? If you want to know what is natural, we, we look to what the Creator's intention is. And then we find that in the Word of God. And we find that in the teachings of Jesus and, and the apostles and the prophets and, and Moses on family, marriage, bringing up children and our life together in that way. And as Paul says, marriage, this giving of oneself to the other and submission to each other, Right? I mean, even sex requires submissiveness, even mutual submissiveness. And Paul makes the point that this is a reflection, and in some ways like an object lesson maybe, or a sermon, let's put it that way, that, that sex within marriage, according to God's intentions, is a sermon to the world of God's choosing humanity, first in Israel and in the case of the church, that God as our bridegroom, Christ as the bridegroom, chooses us and we are brought into this blessed estate, which is again, self-giving and life-giving. If you want to know what, what marriage is like, you want to know what human nature is like or how the Christian understanding of sex is in fact natural, then you've got to look at all that stuff. So I'd say casual sex is the most unnatural thing, right? It goes against the givenness of the thing, um, if you want to know what nature is. Naturalness isn't just how things appear to be in the world as we now experience it or as we want it to be. It is looking to the, the word of the one who made it.
does the church need to recover the term fornication? <laughs> well, of course, that's a biblical word, right? It's kind of an old-fashioned word today to fornicate, fornication. Of course, I think there's benefit to using a term like that because it's a negative term. No one in their right mind is going to say, hey, fornicate. I mean, I guess our world is so twisted, anything is said, but hopefully my point is understood. I think there is benefit in recovering that word. It's a perfectly good word, and it communicates, right? If we just say sex, well, like I've been saying, sex is a, in itself, according to its nature, is a good thing. But fornication, that very word by definition suggests that there's something out of place. Okay, it's not within the blessedness of marriage, that arrangement. It's out of place. And when a thing is out of its place, then it's harmful. It's damaging. It wrongs you. And so I think there's benefit to using those words. And, you know, rightfully used, it is a way to show that this is actually not healthy. This is not good. We shouldn't be too quick to euphemize. You got to know when and where to use what kind of language. But we shouldn't be too quick to euphemize everything and make things very palatable to society. And when we avoid that word, I think maybe that's what's happening. Does the world think too highly of sex? Well, the world thinks it does. It, it, it sees sex as fun. It's, uh, it's recreation. It's something we should allow people to pursue, even at all ages almost. You hear now people talking about child sexuality. Does it think too highly of sex? It thinks of sex a lot, but that doesn't mean that it has any kind of a dignity or joy, really. Sometimes people will say the church thinks too much about sex or too often about sex, or that we're somehow kind of sex-obsessed when we teach morality. And I suppose there have been instances in church history or even now where Christians are very suspicious of it as a thing. And that's not healthy or, or even godly. But no, I think the world actually thinks very low of sex. They would say the church has some kind of a negativity toward it. But I think that is quite the opposite, that you demean it by making it casual. Whereas the church who sees it as majestic and godly and God-pleasing, and even as I just said, almost like a proclamation of the mercies of God. So now I think the world, while they think they have a more, po you know, you hear the term now, sex positive or sex positivity. In other words, we shouldn't be policing each other's bedrooms. So they think that that is actually a more noble or helpful or good approach to sex. But I would say that, like a few moments ago, so that's being satisfied with too little when God wants to give us something much, much better. What is your pastoral advice for Christians whose loved ones are living together before marriage? How common that is now, right? I mean, it is not at all unusual. In fact, it's probably more the norm now for couples in church, in churches who are at least nominally members of the church, sometimes even quite active members of the church, where they or their children or others that they know are engaging in cohabitation, that is to live together outside of the bonds of marriage, the implication being that they're sharing a bed, which is almost certainly the case. I think it's a very big problem. I think it's a very big problem. I mean, that's the first step. That's the first pastoral step is that we just stop averting our eyes to this reality that people in our churches and many Christians have become 
accepting is that the word or tolerant of this behavior even encouraging right i mean they're going to be you're going to definitely hear in congregations where you might be quite surprised to hear and from whom it comes whom someone you, you expect to be very sanctified suggesting that it is actually wise for a couple to live together that way they can kind of like a used car kick the tires try it out take it for a test drive that we can see if we're compatible both sexually and socially by living together and sharing life together under the same roof in that way. I think the first step is that we as pastors and Christians have to frankly stop turning our blind eye to this thing. Every error is really kind of an, an extreme thing. So it's not like we need to make it like the, the content of every sermon, but it should become something that we start to make known, and that means sermons and other things. We need to not be afraid to speak the Word of God in its truth and purity, knowing and being willing to offend. Our goal is not to offend. Our goal is to save. And that might mean hurting someone's feelings or making them mad at you, and it might even mean they abandon the church or abandon your church. I'm not saying we should hasten to drive people out, but sometimes even Jesus, by being Jesus and telling us good things, people didn't want. They turned their back. So I think we have to we have to have moral courage, Todd. We have to have moral courage. And that means to be like the martyrs. And that means to be able to face opposition under the grace of God as Christ did, not as some kind of obnoxious, whatever, violent or hasty or whatever, but that we develop a sense of martyr piety. And I don't mean martyr and kind of poor me. I mean, just that willingness to suffer for the cross and for the sake of Jesus Christ. And so we as Christians and as pastors tend to want to make things easy and smooth and keep everyone under the same tent, whatever the motivations are we have, I think. And by we, I mean, Christian churches um, at large have become far too accepting implicitly, if not overtly, of this very common behavior. And I don't, I don't know what will happen, and I don't know all the answers if we kind of restore a sense that this is sinful, and not just sinful in some kind of abstract way. Sin is bad for you. And so our motive for pointing out sin is because we love you not in a self-righteous manner, but that we, like Christ, love you. And that means at times a call to repentance. And a call to repentance includes the Spirit-led work to amend your life. And so that is a question for a great big conversation, which for some reason often we just want to avoid. Finally, how does God want us to receive the gift of the sexual relationship? I think joyfully. I think understanding it as a gift. So gratefulness is not something that is just there, no matter how delightful in a pleasurable way. I think that we just need to see it as a gift, right? I think that we need to teach it as part of the giftedness of our bodies and our minds and our souls. And that means gratitude and that a sense of gratitude towards the generosity of our father will bring true freedom and it will be beneficial for both people it helps to eradicate selfishness you know what's the opposite of gratitude selfishness and sex is so badly corrupted by just that this radical self-centeredness 
and this isn't something we generate on our own power. This is all virtue is by the power of the Holy Spirit, but we have to put ourselves in the place where the means of grace are there, where the Holy Spirit will work in our hearts, strengthening faith and sanctifying us. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, will holify us, not to be completed until the consummation at the end of time. But that gratefulness of the giving generosity of God, I think, will have the result of hopefully diminishing the selfishness, which is so, so damaging. Dr. Scott Stegemeyer is professor of theology and bioethics at Concordia University, Irvine, California. He's author of a chapter in our forthcoming book, Objections Overruled 3. Scott, thanks. Thank you, Todd. It's always fun to be here. Thursday on Issues Etc., we'll have Dr. Jan Lohmeyer respond to the argument evolution has disproven the creation account, and we'll respond to your email, talkback at issuesetc.org, and the Issues Etc. comment line 618-223-8382. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc., Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.